2: Willie, Harry's D, Harry, Dick John Harry Three, one, two, three, Neds, Richard Two, Henry's four, five, six, then who Ed was four five Dick the Bad, Harry's Twain and Ned the Lad. Mary, Bessie, James, Evain, Charlie, Charlie, James again. Sorry, I slightly rushed the rhyme this week. I do wonder, do I have to do it every week? But my, my producer insists that I do. But I hope if you're listening to every episode, you're slowly learning the rhyme, so when we get to the end of it, you can do it yourself. And at any pub quiz, if you need to know what Monarch came where just refer to the rhyme. And I was doing it quickly to try and save a bit of time, but I realised by talking about it, I've actually added a lot of time. But hopefully this episode won't be too long, not as long as Charles II last week, where there was so much to talk about, because we're on to James II and his reign only actually lasted three years. So most of the run up to that pretty much covers the same ground as well, Oliver Cromwell, and his brother, Charles II. But it does bring in this huge moment in history where James is deposed and replaced by a Dutch monarch. It's one of those occasions where the monarchy sort of flips and we have to invite in foreigners to make it work. So James was born in 1633 and he died in 1701. 68 years old by my calculations. So he was one of our longer lived monarchs. But as I've pointed out, one of the interesting things of that, that even though he was 68 years old, he was only on the throne for three years. And that wasn't in his late 60s. It was when he was in his 50s because of this deposition. And he was lucky to be dethroned, but still hang on to his head so obviously, like his big brother Charles II, his father was Charles I, and his mother was the French Queen Henrietta Maria. And at his baptism, there were quite a lot of people present who would play a very big part in his later life. One of his sponsors was Frederick Henry, Prince of Orange. Now, James was to grow up to spend a third of his life in exile. He was exiled twice Once as a young man during the British Civil Wars and later on again after he's deposed by his nephew and son-in-law, William of Orange, who were both the same person. It was one of those slightly incestuous marriages. Sir James is a classic Duke of York, the second son. Charles, his older brother, is obviously the heir to the throne and he becomes Charles II. James is one of these royal princes who is never expected to take the throne. Consequently, his early life is not as well recorded as Charles's. James didn't have a particularly rigorous education but at the age of three he was appointed Lord High Admiral. Um, the position was initially honorary but after the Restoration. Obviously, when he was quite a lot older, he did essentially take charge of the Navy. But yes, he was put in charge of the Navy when he was only three. I'm going to send my battleship to attack your battleship. Pew, pew, pew. Yeah, I sunk it. He didn't seem to do anything particularly significant as a young man until the Civil Wars kicked off, where he joined his father first at Nottingham and then later at the Battle of Edge Hill when he was only 11 years old, and he and his brother Charles came close to being captured by parliamentarian forces. And that incident is often portrayed in sort of romantic versions of the civil wars, of these two young princes hiding out on the battlefield, trying to be captured by Cromwell's rough, tough soldiers. And after that, James stayed with his father in Oxford, where Charles I had set up his royal court away from London. And young Prince Charles, meanwhile, takes charge of the royalist armies in the west. But he's driven ever further westwards and eventually has to flee the country from Cornwall. And it was while James was in Oxford with his father that he attended the House of Lords in 1644 at the age of 11. Yeah, I'm going to block your deportation bill to Rwanda. Pew, pew. And he stayed in Oxford for a couple of years. Now, I say he did a bit of extra studying. It seems on the whole, he was a fairly reluctant scholar. And like his brother, Charles, he preferred the outdoor pursuits to studying. In 1646, Oxford surrendered to the parliamentarians. James was captured and taken to London, where his own servants were dismissed from his service. And there's a famous quote about the number of staff he had to get rid of. They all had to go, not so much as excepting a dwarf whom his royal highness was desirous to have retained with him. And James, with his sister Mary and his younger brother Henry, was placed in the guardianship of the Earl of Northumberland at St James's Palace. From there he was allowed to visit his father, the captive Kim Charles I, who told him that he needed to be loyal to his older brother, Charles. Um, I suppose there was always this, this fear that some member of the family might break ranks and go over to the parliamentarian side and say, look, I'll, I'll become king if you tell me exactly what you want me to do. But King Charles worked with this guy called Colonel Joseph Bamfield to work out a clever escape plot for James. And the colonel advised James to pretend to be playing hide-and-seek in the grounds, with his brother and his sister. And when charging around looking for a hiding place, he could slip out of the palace into St James's Park, where the colonel was waiting for him to whisk him away to a house near London Bridge, where Bamfield's fiancée, Anne Murray, was ready with girls' clothes, which had been specially made for James to wear. And then they smuggled him down along the Thames to where there was a boat waiting in the docks at Tilbury. And from there he was taken to Holland, where in The Hague he met up with his sister Mary, who had married William, the Prince of Orange. William was essentially the ruler of the Dutch Republic, the ruler of Holland. And as you can tell from his title, he's by no means an absolute monarch like King Louis Fourteenth is in France, and like the Stuart monarchs are always trying to be back home. He rules very much alongside a powerful parliament. So as I say, James's sister Mary had married William of Orange, but try not to get confused. This is not the same William and Mary who later on deposed James and take over the throne of England. I'll get onto to that William and Mary later. So I got this wrong in the last episode. I said that when Charles II arrived in Paris, uh, James was there with his mother Henrietta. But in fact, James was in Holland. Where he stayed for a while. And, and there was one glimmer of hope because some ships in the Parliamentarian Navy mutinied and went over to the Royalist side and set sail for Holland. And the idea was this might be part of a counterattack that Charles and James could mount. And James was very excited as he was head of the Admiralty. He was really looking forward to taking command of these ships. But Charles wouldn't let him. And he put the fleet under the command of. Prince Rupert, Rupert of the Rhine, which was probably the right decision because James, the Duke of York, at this point was still only 15 years old. He'd had no naval experience and he was completely incapable of holding any authority over these. there must have been a pretty rough, tough bunch of sailors. They're not going to be told what to do by some poncy 15-year-old princeling. You men, you sailors there, I want you to get your big guns ready to fire at Cromwell. Pew, pew, pew As it turned out, this little fleet was too small to have any impact anyway. And in 1649, James set off for Paris. And along the way, he spent nearly a month at a Benedictine monastery at St Armand. And he discovered what it was like to live in a Roman Catholic community, and he was clearly drawn to it. He he clearly enjoyed it. When he got to where his mother and his brother were living, Saint-Germain-en-Laye, he found out that his father had been beheaded. I read something by one historian who said, although his reaction is unknown, the news must have concentrated his mind wonderfully. We now get into what is very much a sort of royal so I mean, actually, it's almost a royal sitcom as we have James, Charles and their mother, Henrietta, all holed up in Paris with not much money, with the remains of a royal court around them and all slightly at each other's throats. Charles is arguing with James. James is arguing with his mother. His mother's arguing with Charles. Charles is arguing with his mother. They're all pulling in different directions. Henrietta being... French, and essentially Catholic, is wanting them to make some kind of proper alliances with the French to get close to Louis Fourteenth. Perhaps this might be a way of getting back into power. James is thinking maybe he should be the guy in charge. Charles is trying to work out the best way of doing things. James joins the French army. He seems to have enjoyed being an officer. He seems to have been a pretty efficient soldier. And actually, in some ways, this is part of his life where he's kind of enjoying himself. He's taken a bit of agency. He and Charles spend a lot of time moving around, moving somewhere where somebody might offer them a bit more money. They go to Jersey quite a lot because Jersey is one of these islands off the coast of France that the English still rule over. And they are still loyal to Charles. They never went over to the parliamentarian side. Charles is thinking of using this possibly as a power base and leaving his mother behind. The outcome of it is Charles decides that his future is going to be better if he teams up with the Spanish rather than the French. So they go to the northern part of the Spanish Habsburg Empire between France and the Republic of Holland. So James has to leave the French army and he now joins the Spanish army as an officer. And one of the other reasons for, for joining the army is to learn something of military matters, which he felt would be important if Charles ever regains a throne to have uh, his brother at his side, who kind of knows a bit about the military and a bit about politics. But in the end, he seemed to be a lot more interested and a lot better at being a soldier than being a politician or indeed a king. So, Charles has sided with the Spanish because he got fed up with Louis XIV, who didn't really seem to offer him any firm commitments or very much money. But now he's in the enemy camp to France, which can't have gone down well with his mother. And it's at this point that Cromwell brings an army across the Channel and attacks Dunkirk, the strategic port in the Spanish Netherlands. And the French come to the aid of Cromwell. And James is one of the leaders of the Spanish force that is sent to attack them. So he's now attacking his comrades in the French army at this battle known as the Battle of the Dunes. Suffice to say, James and the Spanish are beaten and they fled. This is early 1660 and the prospects of James and Charles are not looking great. James is offered the post of High Admiral of the Spanish Navy. And this will mean he is actually, for the first time, properly in charge of a big naval force. And he is just about to sign on when Oliver Cromwell dies. And the parliamentarian rule in England falls apart. So James doesn't end up becoming Lord High Admiral of the Spanish Navy. He ends up being properly Lord High Admiral of the English Navy. Because the English Parliament cannot work out a way of going forward that doesn't involve a strong man in charge that people will accept. And so they invite Charles back from his exile to retake the throne. And Charles and James set sail from Holland. So James's first exile is over. Now at this point, James obviously is still not expecting to become king and perhaps he just thinks he can do whatever he likes but um, like his brother charles he was very fond of the ladies and his story is a little bit like edward the 4th similarly a ladies man that's a horrible euphemism isn't it but uh, edward the 4th was well i'll use the term that earl spencer used last week and if a posh dude like him can use it then i will too they were both serial shaggers and edward the 4th was trying to sleep with this commoner, Elizabeth Woodville, and she said she would only sleep with him if he married her. And he did, which scandalised everyone. The same thing happened with James. Charles's chief minister was this guy called Edward Hyde. His daughter was called Anne Hyde, a famous beauty. James was desperate to go to bed with her. She said, only if you marry me. And he did, which scandalised society and the country. Nobody liked the idea of a royal prince marrying a commoner. They wanted a nice posh Disney wedding with a prince and a princess, but no, he married Anne Hyde. And everybody was saying to her, including Anne's father, don't do it, no good will come of it. And they're saying to James, look, you made this promise to her before you slept with her, you don't have to stick to it. I don't think it's a good idea you're getting married. But they did um, in 1660 in London. And it was very much a shotgun wedding. Their first child, Charles, was born less than two months later. He unfortunately died in infancy, as did another five children. Only two daughters survived, Mary and Anne, both of whom were going to go on to be queens of England. And he seems to have been a devoted father. Samuel Pepys wrote that he was very fond of his children, which is not a given. In royal households. And Samuel Pepys, sort of slightly surprised, said he lived like an ordinary private father of a child. And James seemed to be very much in love with Anne Hyde, but that didn't mean that he was any more faithful to her than uh, his brother Charles was to his queen. And Charles himself said to a French ambassador, In 1677, I do not believe there are two men who love women more than you and I do, but my brother, devout as he is, loves them still more. Samuel Pepys was famously very candid in his diaries, and he wrote the more salacious passages in his own code. But he described James as the most unguarded ogler of his time. Now, some people are quite rude about James's mistresses, about their looks, but I won't go into that. I'm not going to taint this historical essay with the intrusion of the male gaze. But James, when he wasn't chasing women, was chasing foxes. He seemed to go fox hunting two or three times a week. He had large stables for his horses and kennels for his hounds. Uh, he also went to the races with Charles, to Newmarket and other meetings, but apparently didn't gamble or drink very much. So he was uh, not like his brother in in many ways. And in fact, as he got older, he seemed to become more and more ascetic, particularly as he embraced Catholicism. Uh, And he sort of seemed to slightly withdraw from the everyday pleasures of the world. But at this time, he was still going for it. And the household officials really struggled to keep up with him and Anne they, like Charles, ran a very lavish household. Anne and her father had been in exile on the continent, uh, just the same as James. And James and Anne, they'd both, you know, they'd both been through this period where they didn't really have any money. They were living hand to mouth in Paris. And so they now seemed hell-bent on spending lots of money and living as lavish a lifestyle as they could get away with. So he's in charge of the Navy during... His brother Charles's reign, so he plays a big part in the second Anglo-Dutch War. Uh, Cromwell had started the first Anglo-Dutch War. Charles started the second one. It's essentially a trade war. But one of the things that led to this war breaking out was a fight between the English and the Dutch for control of the slave trade from West Africa. The Dutch had these strategic ports there where they'd built forts to keep the local army in. And essentially, they had martial law in West Africa. And this was to control the trade in what they saw as valuable commodities, gold, silver and people, African slaves. And this English company had been set up called the Royal African Company. And they and the British Navy attacked these Dutch outposts and managed to take them over And the Royal African Company really dominated the slave trade between Africa and the Caribbean on the other side of the Atlantic. And many of these slaves were branded on the chest with the letters DY for Duke of York, because he was the governor of the RAC. And the RAC shipped more slaves, men, women and children, to the Americas than any other single institution during the entire period of the transatlantic slave trade. James was also granted colonial rights on the American mainland and this whole territory in the northeast was rebranded as New England and a a key part of this was when um, a British fleet under the command of Robert Nichols captured this Dutch territory of New Amsterdam and renamed it New York in honour of James, the Duke of York. And he became the first ruler of the colony. So that's why New York is called New York. And if you've never wondered why New Jersey is called New Jersey, it's after the island of Jersey where James and Charles spent time in exile. The Dutch governor of New Amsterdam, who was ousted by Nichols, was called Peter Stuyvesant, a name which is now probably best remembered as a brand of cigarettes. And funnily enough, among Colonel Nicholl's parties were the Duke of Marlborough, Earl Chesterfield, Sir Robert Dunhill, Admiral Benson and Captain Hedges, and Lord Players No. 6. <laughs> Actually, that was all entirely untrue, in case you couldn't tell. So the English now had this huge part of America. So that was one of the more successful undertakings of the British Navy. Another one was the Battle of Lowestoft, where James was in charge Of the British ships that defeated the Dutch fleet there. But after that, Charles said that James was not allowed to be directly involved in any actual combat. So although he wasn't in active service, he was still technically in charge when the English fleet suffered this great disaster when the Dutch sailed up the Thames and sunk the British fleet that was moored at Chatham. Before stealing the flagship, the Royal Charles and taking it back to Holland as a trophy. James managed to escape being blamed for this, but the Lord Chancellor, his father-in-law, Edward Hyde, seemed to not be able to dodge the bullet, which James, I think, may have engineered, because he was not on good terms with his father-in-law. Ultimately, James wouldn't have been able to stay in charge of the fleet, because the big thing that started to consume Charles's reign was this idea of trying to ban Catholics from taking any kind of official positions which meant that James once he came out fully would not have been able to be in charge of the navy and in 1673 uh, the first test act was passed which is the first of these official government rulings on well basically on banning Catholics from doing anything. Exactly when James converted to Catholicism, uh, nobody is quite sure because he kept it secret for a while. While he'd been in France, his mother had tried to convert him and he'd resisted that, although he was impressed by many of the Catholics he he met over there. And he was certainly sympathetic to the Catholics in England after the Restoration. And it was at the end of the 60s that he really started to go through this process. Uh, He was very ill in 1670, which is often a trigger for people to convert as they lie dying in bed, clutching onto anything that might save them, praying to God. And it happened with a lot of people from Henry Eighth onwards, this idea of them trying to repent, of thinking, and it worked either way, it's either that they've been a Protestant and they now think, oh God, I was doing the wrong thing. God is punishing me. I should have been a Catholic. Or the other way around, they were a Catholic and then God is punishing me. I need to be a proper good Protestant. And the former certainly became James's mindset. I should have been a Catholic all along. What was I thinking? In later life, there's some evidence that he took up a sort of hair shirt, spiked necklace, self-flagellating penance. The other thing that seemed to have tipped him over was he was a bit disgusted by all the divisions among Protestants. We've seen how after the execution of Charles I, there's this explosion of different Protestant sects, different ways of being a Protestant, whether you're a Presbyterian or a Baptist, an Anabaptist, an Anglican, a Puritan, a leveller, a digger, a millenarian. And James looked at this and thought, well, the Protestants can't really decide how their religion works. But on the Catholic side, there is only one way. Catholicism is one thing. Protestantism seemed to be many, and that seemed to make sense to James. It seemed to be a more ordered, orderly system. He was quite a dull man, perhaps dull-witted as well. He didn't like complexity. He liked things to be simple. He wrote some memoirs which are deathly, deathly dull, and his accounts of being in charge of the navy It's just sort of lists. Nothing personal seems to come through. But anyway, it was by the mid-1670s that James was really fully committed to being a Catholic. Nevertheless, he did rather reluctantly allow King Charles II to arrange for his daughter Mary to marry the Protestant, Prince William III of Orange. This is where it's complicated. I said earlier I'd try and explain about William and Mary. Much easier to do with a family tree, so maybe take a look at one. But it goes something like this. We have these three siblings, Charles II, his sister Mary, and their younger brother, James. Charles II has no rightful heirs. Sister Mary marries William II, Prince of Orange. And they have a son, William the Third, Prince of Orange. Meanwhile, James and Anne have a daughter, Mary. That daughter, Mary, marries her cousin, William III. So they are very, very closely related. And they also share the names of William's parents. So it's a tricky one to fully get your head around. So that's the marriage... And these are the people who are going to betray James. His own daughter, Mary, and his son-in-law, who is also his nephew, William. So we looked in the last episode at how this fake priest, Titus Oates, created this great conspiracy, claimed there was a popish plot to kill Charles and put James on the throne. And this created a wave of anti-Catholic hysteria, which, which possessed the whole nation and encouraged Parliament to try and push through another of these exclusion bills. Charles tried to stop that happening by dissolving Parliament. And twice after that, the same thing happened. He'd put Parliament back in place. They'd try and bring in an exclusion bill. Charles would have to shut them down. And this was the birth of the two-party system in politics. There were the Whigs, the Liberals, the more rebellious types who supported the bill, and there were the Tories, the more conservative types who opposed it. It didn't help, James, that it was around about this time that he announced that he was a Catholic, because the king, Charles II, had no legitimate children of his own. He had enough illegitimate children to start his own football team, but no legitimate children. James was exiled for a while in Brussels, but when a rumour went round that Charles was seriously ill, he came rushing back, thinking he might take over the throne. Uh, But Charles wasn't as ill as everyone said. And instead of re-exiling James, he sent him up to Scotland and put him in charge up there. He wasn't hugely popular in Scotland. He wasn't hugely popular in England. Um, He did come back to England um, and got caught up in this thing called the Rye House plot that we looked at in the last episode, an attempt to assassinate Charles and James on their way back from Newmarket races. But when Newmarket burnt down, they left Newmarket early and avoided the whole thing. This restored a bit of James's popularity and allowed him to stay on at court. Charles died in middle age in 1685 and James came to the throne. There seemed to have been a certain amount of cheering in London and the crowning ceremony went off peacefully. Although there was a moment that uh, some people felt was an omen when the crown slipped on the new king's head. Anyone who watched the coronation of King Charles can't help to have been caught up in the nail-biting moment where the Archbishop of Canterbury is trying to get the crown to sit comfortably on Charles's head because the last thing anyone wants is for it to wobble or slip off. Um, in the end, the Archbishop almost nailed it to Charles's head. Um, They didn't want a repeat of what had happened when James came to the throne. But although the actual coronation went off without incident, soon after there were two dangerous rebellions. The first in Scotland, where Archibald Campbell, the Earl of Argyll, uh, tried to raise a rebellion there. And then also in the West Country, where James Scott, the Duke of Monmouth, had come over trying to raise an English army. Now, James Scott, the Duke of Monmouth, was the eldest son of Charles II, but he was the illegitimate one. We saw how Charles ennobled most of his illegitimate children. And James was a fairly popular figure, but um, it turned out that he was not as popular as he thought. And neither was Argyle, who only managed to raise an army of 2,500 men who were easily suppressed by James's troops. Argyle was captured, taken to Edinburgh, and executed without trial. Monmouth, meanwhile, had brought his small army over and set up camp at Lyme Regis in the West Country. But James managed to get Parliament to agree to raising some money to send a proper army to defeat Monmouth, which they did at the Battle of Sedgemoor. And Monmouth himself, poor illegitimate James, was taken to London and executed by a pretty ham-fisted executioner, who took something like seven or eight blows to get his head off. And in response to this rebellion, James sent the famous Judge George Jeffries to the West Country to deal with the rebels in a series of court cases known as the Bloody Assizes. Um, he was seen as being extremely ruthless and unforgiving. And it didn't actually go down that well. I mean, there had been some popular support for the Duke of Monmouth. James is not sitting that comfortably on the throne. So even though he's beaten these rebellions, people aren't fully behind him. Particularly as on the back of this, he tried to enlarge the army and make it a permanent thing, which uh, the English traditionally have never liked. And there was continuing unrest. James tried to suppress anybody who appeared to be anti-Catholic. I mean, the thing with James was, he was pro-Catholic, but but he wasn't anti-Protestant. He was reasonably uh, liberal in his views and, and really was trying to promote freedom of worship, sort of saying, well, anybody can worship God however they want, including Catholics. But in Scotland, there were riots there where people thought he was trying to turn them all Catholic. There were various court cases back in England, which James lost. And he was losing support all round. He may have held on to power if he hadn't had a son. Now, his first wife, Anne Hyde, had died. And he married an Italian noblewoman, Mary of Medina, who was seen very much as being a Catholic, a Catholic interloper. Italy is the home of the Pope, So this is very much seen as another attempt by James to turn the country Catholic. And when they have a son, James, if only these monarchs wouldn't keep calling their children the same name as themselves. But anyway, they have this son, James, and now everybody is saying, oh, my God, this is the birth of a Catholic dynasty. We're all going to end up Catholic again. And there's another conspiracy theory doing the rounds that Mary of Medina hadn't been pregnant at all. And the baby wasn't even James's. It was some commoner's baby smuggled into the royal bedchamber in a bedwarming pan. So these are crazy times. And it's at this point that the lords get together and start properly plotting against James. Now, we've seen that James has these two daughters, Mary and Anne. So Mary has a legitimate claim on the throne. It's not as strong as James's new son, James. James. But because there are all these laws being put in place to ban Catholics from taking the throne, Mary is seen as the next rightful heir because she is very much a Protestant and she is married to a Protestant. And yes, it's not great to have a queen on the throne, but we've got this guy, William of Orange, so we'll have a king and queen. They can jointly rule. And so they invite William and Mary to come to England and take the throne from James so James is seeing support fall away from all around him. And this is his own daughter now who's turned against him. Hopefully he's thinking his second daughter, Anne, will stick by him. But she doesn't. She too turns against him. We'll come on to this more when we look at Anne's reign. But anyone who has seen The Favourite with Olivia Colman will know a bit about what's going on here. Really, before that film, the sort of The general public didn't really know that much about Anne, so it was useful to to tell us a bit about her and these incredibly close relationships, these power relationships which she had with the women around her at court. And her original favourite was Sarah Churchill, the wife of this guy, John Churchill. John Churchill goes on to be the famous Duke of Marlborough and he is a descendant of William Churchill. Now, John Churchill is an extremely influential and powerful general. He leads a strong force in the army. William and Mary come over from Holland, bringing their own army with them. And there does seem to be popular support, but it could go either way. And as the forces are getting ready to join in battle, John Churchill switches sides. He deserts James and goes over to William's side. He takes his wife, Sarah Churchill, along with him, obviously. And Anne, who is very close to Sarah, supports them. This is the final blow to James. He turns down battle with William and hands himself over to him. He is deposed and William and Mary take the throne. In this process... Subsequently became called the Glorious Revolution, and people have argued was it glorious? Was it a revolution? What actually happened? I'll talk to my guest in a minute about that. The last thing William wants is for his father in law to be hanging around as some kind of captive at the royal court. He also obviously doesn't want to have another controversial execution. And James can't really be held to blame for anything. There's not really a case against him to say that he should be executed. So William sort of contrives for James to be allowed to escape. He makes his way back to France, where he kind of regroups, rethinks things, has a look at it. What are his chances of raising a decent army to properly go up against William And he decides that Ireland is the best bet if he sides with the Irish Catholics who really don't like this new super Protestant monarchy in London. So James goes over to Ireland, raises an Irish army, essentially a Catholic army, and William of Orange brings this Protestant army over to Ireland. And he defeats James and the Irish Catholic army at the Battle of the Boyne. And if you've ever wondered what on earth was going on in Ireland with the marches of the Orange Men and their support of King Billy and these murals that they paint of King Billy, the King Billy is obviously King William, William of Orange, hence the Orange Men. And this is seen as the defeat of the Catholics by the Protestants and the next step with the heavy boot of English Protestantism into suppressing the Irish. So James is defeated at the Battle of the Boyne and instead of staying to fight on and raise another Irish army and really deal with these English Protestants he does a runner. He deserts his Irish supporters and he leaves Ireland earning him the nickname in Ireland of Seamus and Chaka. I've probably pronounced that completely wrong but it translates into English as James the Shit. He goes back to France and he essentially gives up he becomes not exactly a hermit but he lives quietly and when there's an attempt to assassinate King William in England uh, to restore James which is heavily put down that's it nobody is going to support James anymore the backlash against him made him even less popular to try and cheer him up Louis the Fourteenth said how would you like to be king of Poland I could I could get you in there But James doesn't want it. He says, no, if I'm to have any chance of getting back into England, which I know is very slim, if I'm king of Poland, it's not going to work. So, as I say, he lives quietly and peacefully until 1701, where he died of a brain hemorrhage. They cut his body into bits so that parts could be buried in different churches. Obviously, he would have wanted to be buried in Westminster Abbey, but that's not going to happen. His brain was buried in the Scots College in Paris, his heart in a nunnery at Chalot. His corpse was buried in the English Benedictine Church in the Faubourg Saint Jacques and it was only meant to be provisional. The idea was that ultimately it would be buried in Westminster Abbey. There was one final bit of him that was cut off and sent to some Augustinian nuns in Paris and they must have been overjoyed when the postman knocked "'Oh, look, Sister Mary!' "'I'm going to do them as Irish nuns. "'All all nuns are really Irish, even though these were French. "'Oh, look, Sister Mary, a package has arrived in the post. "'What is it? "'Well, it, it looks like... "'Well, it looks like the flesh from King James's right arm. "'Oh, lovely!' "'Went a bit Welsh at the end there. "'And the burial of his body did turn out not to be permanent.' Because during the French Revolution, his tomb was broken up and his body was displayed for a few months as a tourist attraction, after which it was destroyed. But his relics, his heart, his entrails, hair cuttings, linen dipped in blood, the flesh from his right arm, were eventually, over the years, taken to England. So that is the sad and slightly strange end of James. And be sure to join me after the break where I go through all this, with my historian for this episode, Rebecca Radil.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
2: Welcome back. And I'm delighted to say that my special guest on this episode is the historian and author Rebecca Radiel, who wrote 1666 Plague, War and Hellfire. That's a great title A good uh, grabby title there, Rebecca. (laughs) Thank you.
1: I came up with the title quite early on and then I kind of like, I really had a lot to fight for to live up to the title, but (laughs) hopefully I achieved it. Who knows?
2: So did you get the plague, war and hellfire bit and then think, what date would work with that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, basically, no. Um, I just thought I always wanted to write a book about the Restoration um, because i'm fascinated by that by that time period in particular and also situating it within london um just cuz it was just so interesting what was going on with the theatres mm. etc but there's been there's been loads of books on the restoration so i I'm, i was thinking and then the anniversary of the great fire of london was coming round and i thought oh that might be a good good thing to do. So I'll write one about the Great Fire and also the Great Plague. And then actually the three things that people were thinking of as one, well, not one, but um, as being linked together was the Great Fire, the Great Plague and the Dutch war that was going on at the same time. Um, So that's basically what the book's about. It's a snapshot of a year or 18 months and um, covering those three major events and how people dealt with them and felt about them and interacted.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's really good sometimes, isn't it? To sort of pick on one thing and through the lens of that, look at a much wider picture.
1: Yeah, I think so. Because you you can then get the human stories and you can really go into them a lot. And plus, anyone that researches and writes about the restoration is completely blessed by the fact that we have Samuel Pepys' diaries. Um, Always have to be mindful that he is a person. He's not an impartial travel guide for us. And he is also not someone that you would want to spend time with in real life, uh, especially as a woman. But he um, he's, it, it's invaluable.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting one, that, isn't it? You know, would you sit down and write a history of, of the early 21st century based entirely on, say, I don't know, the, the diaries of Boris Johnson or something?
1: <laughs> you would like to think not. But imagine, oh my gosh, imagine if something happened and they were the only things left. No.
2: <laughs> but uh, but Peeps wasn't the only Diarist was he?
1: No, there were others. So um, John Evelyn, he was writing as well. His diaries weren't so detailed in terms of you know his bodily functions, etc. <laughs> you know, they're not. The they're they're a bit more t- you know tame. <laughs> yeah. But um, there were there were loads of writers. It's a really amazing period when you're looking at sources. But there's a reason why Samuel Pepys has his fame, and that's because he is so candid. He really is. Mm. Um, and I think probably a comparison might be, you know, political diaries of the, the 20th century, but even not all of them go into their daily kind of leching. Well,
2: uh, Alan Clark was yeah. fairly um, was fairly free yeah. with his uh, comments.
1: No, of course. And then maybe <laughs> Anne Lister as well, I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, oh, but yes. there's very few over time that are really... I mean, there's probably be more now because we like to talk about everything these days, but um, there's very few over history that you can really get a sense of who that person was um, mm-hmm. through their work and their daily diary. And uh, you can use him. He's great because he's kind of like a Rosetta Stone in a way because you can find things there and then link them with other source material yeah. and
2: And Pepys did live through very interesting times, very eventful times. I mean, I haven't really talked about the plague and the fire yet in this episode because I wanted to discuss it with you as it's central to your book on 1666. But Pepys wrote very vividly about it all, didn't he? And the one thing I suppose that everyone kind of latches onto is that he buried his favourite huge wheel of cheese in his back garden so it wouldn't be destroyed. It was so valuable. But Daniel Defoe also wrote about all this, didn't he, in his Journal of the Plague Year? That was written
1: um, much later because he was actually only five when the plague took place. Yeah. Now, I've got a few memories, I think, from when I'm five, but I don't actually <laughs> know whether they're just because I've looked at a photograph and then it's become a, a false memory in my head. I don't know. Yes.
2: But- so how reliable is that book considered as a as a record?
1: I think there's a lot of use with that record. I think there's lots of information there that he would have collected from his contemporaries. Um there's evidence to suggest that lots of it was told to him by his uncle, who obviously would have been older during the Great Plague. Mm. He's clearly drawn from the Bills of Mortality to tell the story and tell it, you know, give us the 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 death count. It's it's Daniel Defoe, so some things are exaggerated for the readers. I mean that's what he did <laughs> in mm. all his work. And there are certain aspects that you think, well, was that really as it as it seems? So he talks, for example, about um, seeing bodies being um, thrown into the earth. Um, and from the evidence we see in pictures and also archaeological evidence recently, we know that they were placed into the earth with much more care. But whether that was the case in every burial pit, I don't know. But mm. I, I think with every source, treat it with care, especially so because it's fiction, but then fiction sometimes has more to offer than, than factual documents when it comes to the human story of um, big events as well.
2: And, and how many people do they now think actually died in London in the play?
1: We think it's probably around 100,000, The wow. yeah, which proportionally is huge. The population of London, we think at that time was around 500,000 and mm. a significant portion of that fled. So... It's, you know, hit rate one in three, perhaps. But then you have to think that's just one in three people who died. Mm. Everyone who remained behind would have been affected in one way or another, whether that was your family member dying, your neighbour, whatever. Mm. I think we can actually imagine, get a sense of the kind of grief and trauma that they might have experienced because we've had a, a pandemic recently. But even so, not on that scale
2: no, it would, that would have had to kill, what, about a million and a half people in London to be of a similar impact, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, then, yeah. and there were all these reports of London at the time becoming a sort of ghost town, in, well, in more ways than one, of just everybody fearful, the street's empty. Uh, and it being a sort of, well, you know, the descriptions very much look like something out of a post apocalypse movie. <laughs>
1: yeah, they do. They do. And this again this is where you get information from peeps which is really interesting. He talks about grass growing on and on the mm. the roads and streets which obviously was significant because that was not something that they would ordinarily see. There was an anecdote in his diary about how a pocket of the I, don't, I can't remember now whether it was the Royal Society but it was a a small little Club anyway that they'd continued throughout the plague sneakily to um, frequent a coffee house um, hidden away, so. <laughs> breaking
2: all the COVID regulations, partying in a coffee house.
1: <laughs> How dare they?
2: <laughs> and did any of them survive? <laughs> well, yes, they. Well, they did. To tell the tale, whether they whether they were super spreaders and passed it on to others though I don't know. <laughs> oh. And uh, did the the fire of sixteen sixty six. Did that contribute to the end of the plague or had it sort of burnt itself out by then?
1: It had almost ended. I mean, there were still plague deaths. Plague is was endemic. Um, there were always a, a couple of deaths in the country every year. Um, but by the time we get to September 1666, the, it was not an epidemic. It dropped dramatically from November 1665 and it was basically on its way out by March 1666. Mm. But we are told that, aren't we, that the Great Plague, by burning down all the houses, it yes. meant that there was no space for the rats to live anymore. But it just doesn't <laughs> make sense with the story of the plague. But it is still a mystery why it, why it didn't return.
2: But whatever the case, I guess people must have thought, oh, God, we really don't need this. What next? I, it, it felt a bit like after the height of the COVID pandemic, when the last thing the world needed was for Putin to invade the Ukraine.
1: I wrote this book in 2015, 2016, right. and I wrote it be- obviously before the pandemic. And during the pandemic, it really did make me rethink the sources. Not necessarily, mm. I don't know necessarily whether any of my arguments would have changed, but I certainly had much more empathy for the people that I was writing about.
2: Yeah, and when I was looking into the plague and how it affected people, particularly in London, the parallels with the COVID pandemic seem seemed really close. People didn't know how to deal with it. The government was all at sea. They tried a form of lockdown, quarantine. I mean, at least when Covid hit, we had a much better understanding of science and medicine, didn't we? And we were able to I mean, extraordinarily quickly create effective vaccines. And preventative measures for the plague back in 1666 really look like they did more harm than good. And you do realise how lucky we are in the West to largely be immune to these massive upsets.
1: There's one um, amazing source from the Great Plague of 1665-6. It's written by a man called Thomas Clarke, and he was quarantined with his family, and he writes about his experiences of losing his... I can't remember offhand how many children, but one child um, at least... And he talks about how they were given a lock. And I can only assume that the lock was to keep the infected within the household in separate spaces to those that didn't have it. And he talks about the trauma of not being able to comfort your loved one. And I just thought, my goodness. I mean, we've all got COVID stories. We all know someone or some, Mm -hmm. you know, a friend of a friend who either suffered with it very badly or sadly passed away. I, I certainly have myself. And it really, it did really make me think about that
2: collective trauma that people must have been experiencing. And then London catches fire. Yeah. Um, now, James seemed to have slightly redeemed himself in the eyes of the people by being a sort of hero firefighter. In the, I mean, it, how much of that is propaganda or how much, it, you know, he and Charles were really out there, well, they weren't manning the hoses, but the equivalent of.
1: Yeah, so... It's so interesting because I think they were making the propaganda as they went. So the firefighting was a propaganda campaign in itself. Um, They had to help. Obviously, they had to help. The court had um, fled London during the Great Plague of 1665. First, it had gone to Salisbury, where it had actually spread the infection. Then it had gone to Oxford. The Duke of York at the time, who would later become James II, had travelled all around the country on a bit of a, a tour and then had joined the court in Oxford as well, where they'd had an amazing time. The main... Um, priority according to many sources from the time that they were in oxford was not the plague but it was the the disease of love because they're all falling in love with each other's wives and mistresses and <laughs> and all the rest of it and it's just quite hilarious but also yeah um so there was you know there was a sense that obviously the king does need to flee like you you're not going to put yourself at risk of catching the plague if you're the the ruler of a country mm. so it does make sense that he left but also it's not a good look is it so when the great fire happened um initially, the actual um, responsibility for looking after any outbreak of fire within the city of London would fall to the mayor and the aldermen and establish systems in place. That kind of failed
2: with Thomas Bloodworth. Well, he seems to have been useless. He said, oh, there's nothing to worry about. You know, it'll all be fine. I do feel a bit say? of
1: sympathy for him. Not, not a huge <laughs> amount, but a tiny. He's not amount. like the
2: mayor in Jaws.
1: No. (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) Actually, maybe he was. I don't know. But I just feel like because London was not a place where you would have a a house and you could go in and the owner of the house would be there and you could say, do you mind if we pull down your house? You know, they would say no anyway. (laughs) But on top of that problem was the fact that the owners of most of the properties in London didn't live in them. It was all tenants. So tenants couldn't give the permission for houses to be pulled down to create fire breaks. So what do you do if you're the one that says, yes, let's pull down these houses? if the fire's not a great fire, it's just a little fire and you've done
2: that, then, you know. But it worked in James's favour.
1: It did, it did. He was cast in a very good kind of fiery light. He was put in charge when Bloodworth vacated the scene, he was placed in charge of combating the fire and he organized teams of men and boys, actually some schoolboys, some from Westminster school um, that were positioned at various points around the city of London to combat the spread. They were never going to have that much of an effect, um, but it did boost morale and it showed that mm. people were actually trying to prevent this fire from spreading. It obviously lasted for four, four and a half days. Um, before finally burning itself out. But it was it was a good PR move for James. It was a really good PR move for Charles as well. And they made sure that as soon as the London Gazette was back up and running, they got a really <laughs> glowing write-up in
2: the, um, the next edition. Overall, he was not that great at PR. I mean, can you just go into that a bit of, of how the perception of him changed during his life and during his reign? And also, you know, what is the sort of, the current consensus on James?
1: I don't think, just to answer your last question first, I don't think there is a consensus Hmm. because he's a difficult man to pin down. Some might think he he was insignificant in in many ways. He ruled for, what, three years. That's a really Hmm. short time when you compare it to the rest of the reigns in the 17th century. But equally, he probably lived the longest out of... Most of the monarchs. So you know, he died at 67, and he lived through this huge tumultuous chunk of the 17th century. He'd he'd lived through civil wars. He'd lived in exile. He'd been um, part of the wars that were going on in the continent between France Mm. and Spain. He'd had this incredibly busy life of combat, of not having much money. Um, of being the second son um, and all all of the stuff that comes with that. The spare. (laughs) The spare and and all of that. But I think in terms of his character, you can't help but compare him to Charles, his brother. Um, Charles was very, I actually, and I've said this before, I would never write it in a book because I I don't always (laughs) like it when people put psychology
2: I know, but you can say what you like on this podcast. On a podcast. It's a, it, I take a very cheap approach. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I, I do have my thoughts. I do think if he was around today, he might be on the sociopath spectrum, Charles. oh, know you think so. I
2: oh, think Charles. Charles.
1: Okay. Whereas James wasn't as good at reading people. He was very hmm. stubborn Um. Once he'd made his mind up about something, he was going to do it or he was going to try mm-hmm. to do it. Um, and I think that's a failing in a monarch. You can't be stubborn. I think the pragmatism that his brother Charles had um, ensured that monarchy was safe-ish for 25 years under Charles. It it would have helped James if he'd been a bit more pragmatic, but it just wasn't in his nature. Maybe in some ways he was he was like his father.
2: He must have felt that he could push through that he could get away with it that he that he had enough support i mean he obviously didn't but he must have had that conviction
1: he must have done but also we we say conviction but it also could be said to be faith he had all of the fervor of a convert he really did believe in what he was doing he thought it was the right thing to do he wanted to allow toleration for catholics as a consequence of that, there was toleration for other religious minorities. As some people have been very, very kind to James and said that you know he was really tolerant. I think that was only because it was the only way he could get the Catholic tolerance that he needed. Yeah, I think he did think he could push it through, and I think he was allowed, in some ways, to just do what he was doing. There was there was obviously resistance, but for many people, he was old by seventeenth century standards. His brother had already died, and mm. he was only a couple of years um older than, than James. His heir had been brought up, Church of England, Anglican, on purpose. You know, this would just be a blip, and then they'd go back to um Anglicanism. That would be mm. that would be fine, and this is just a weird blip, and all would be well. But then we have what was probably I'm going to say the most unwelcome baby news in all of history. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, there have been a lot of them through, through the Monarchs. Yeah. Yes, and and that son, James, he's called a pretender, but he really is the guy that had the biggest right to succeed.
1: He is the heir now. So it's we've got primogeniture. Mm. It's it's the male that will, will inherit. And he's going to be brought up as a Catholic. He's got a Catholic mum. He's got a Catholic dad. He's got a Catholic dad that wants... To instil Catholicism, because he he's got this idea that there's lots of Catholics just you know waiting to come out. They've been waiting there, but in reality, there's a really really small proportion of the population that are Catholics in England at this time, and in Scotland, larger obviously in Ireland, um, but in England and Scotland, it's 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 really small. So this kind of mm. big reveal, kind of you know pulling the cloak off. Yes, I'm actually secretly a Catholic. That's not that's not something that happens for him. But his son is obviously the heir. That means that they're not going to get Mary, which means they're not going to get Mary and William, um, which worries everyone because this is a trajectory that
2: no one really foresaw. How much of the British Parliament and and how much of the, the British people were were really behind the idea of getting William and Mary over when they were finally, well, invited or or was it? you know some people say well no it was an invasion it
1: definitely was an invasion it was a really clever one though as he was leaving the Netherlands he sent loads of pamphlets um, again a PR campaign basically reassuring the public you know I'm not here this isn't an invasion loads of ships (laughs) approaching the shoreline don't worry and um, we're just coming here to sort things out and put England back on its path, England and Scotland and Ireland back on its on the correct path. Um, and and yeah, but it was an invasion. You don't bring troops and ships and horse and weaponry <laughs> if it's not an invasion. Um it absolutely was it's so good of an invasion that we're still discussing whether it actually was an invasion these days. That PR campaign was superb.
2: Well, however it's spun, we can't get away from the fact that James was dethroned and fled the country. Ultimately, he comes across to me as basically a loser. (laughs) And I have to say, he seems quite a boring loser as well. Am I doing him a disservice?
1: I think personality-wise, yeah. He was straightforward. He wore his heart on his sleeve. There was jokes about how he, because he had lots of mistresses, everyone had mistresses mm. within the royal court, um, there were jokes that the, the types of mistresses he had, and this is quite a chauvinistic joke, actually, but because they weren't as attractive as other ones that they'd been given to him for um, penance. Um,
2: I'm, I'm glad you've said yeah. that because I didn't want to mention it as a bloke.
1: <laughs> no, but that's, I mean, there were jokes about that, but then there were also, it just got quite knotty and messy. So I mentioned um, when the court went to Oxford in 1665, There's this beautiful um, young woman that both Charles and James had their eye on and they fell out because of it. But then also with regards to James and his wife, Anne, who he'd married in a shotgun wedding, they had a very tempestuous relationship as well because they both Mm -hmm. kept falling in love with other people. Anne was in love with her master of horse, royal women and masters of horse, by the way, that's... um, (laughs) That's a topic. But, yeah, it it was just a very knotty, messy messy court. Had he not been a royal, I don't think he would have had the charisma to to rise within that setting because it was full Mm. of wits. It was full of people that were either really clever politically or just a a real laugh that the king liked Mm. being around or funny. So, yeah, I think he stands out in that regard as well.
2: Well, I suppose he did seem to have been quite a good soldier in his younger days. He was good at that, at least. Although when it came down to it, his last big battle, the Battle of the Boyne in Ireland against William's army, I mean, he lost that and ran away again. And then he went off and just sort of lived quietly in France till the end of his days.
1: Yeah, yeah, always, you know, he was, I think, regretful and sad at the loss. Never lost the hope, I don't think. Yeah, I think it it, quite a sad end to his life, really.
2: Was he a sort of... um, bit of an Edward VIII figure.
1: Yeah, very much like the prototype. If we are to think maybe he had some kind of breakdown in
2: 1688. When he didn't stand up to William of Orange, despite being this very experienced soldier.
1: Then maybe always regretting that, perhaps. Um, but also the betrayal. Um, and whatever you think of James, mm. the reports seem to suggest that he was a good father. He was present. He was, present. Mm-hmm. He was as much as he could be as a royal father, um, and he had bonds with his with his children, particularly when they were young. Mm. Um, and Anne turned well, against him. Mary very obviously did, but Anne, who was with him mm. in the same palace, turned against him and actually conspired against him in the lead up to the
2: invasion, um, which mm. must have hit hard. Well, there we have the sad end of James the Second, a bit of a loser. <laughs> That's my, That's going to be my history book. <laughs> James II, a bit of a loser. <laughs> um, Rebecca, one of the other things you've done is you've set up a history festival, HISTFest. Yep. Tell us a bit about that. Um,
1: so HISTFest is an annual festival now that takes place at the British Library, usually in the springs. This year, it's taking place the 13th of the 14th to the 14th of April. Um, if you're listening to this past that date, you can probably still watch the stuff on catch up somewhere, Mm -hmm. TBC. And we also do standalone events throughout the year and run history courses as well.
2: And what's the sort of general philosophy behind the festival?
1: History is for everyone. I think everyone has that philosophy, but it really is for everyone. And I like to mix <laughs> things up. I like to have, obviously, historians and academics, but popular historians talking to academic historians, but then also creators of historical fiction, because I think we all have a role mm. to play in the way that history is presented to the public.
2: And lots of people are interested in history. Well, an extraordinary number of people interested in history. I mean, there are so many podcasts now, <laughs> mine included, <laughs> and festivals and I think there's a, there's a huge appetite out there for people to to learn what happened and to own it a bit more and not be told what happened by the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Absolutely. Johnson Absolutely
1: <laughs> we don't want to be told by them we don't sorry to be all political but we don't want to be told by them
2: No you want to be told by me so, so that was Rebecca Redial. Look out for Histfest, which takes place every spring in London. And if you want to dig deeper into the lives of Charles and James, then check out Rebecca's book, 1666, Plague, War and Hellfire. In the next episode, we'll see what happens when James's daughter Mary takes the throne from him, alongside her husband, William of Orange, in an episode of history that has become known as the Glorious Revolution. And I'll be asking the questions, was it glorious? And was it a revolution?